Hi, I'm Bob Eckblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple. Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. Today I want to look at Acts 9, the study of Saul and his encounter with Jesus, and then the recruitment of Ananias to minister to Saul. And this Bible study I've done twice in the last week, once with our Tianoeva faith community. And then on Saturday, we did a two-hour series of Bible studies with the Underground Church, a group of about 10 uh, Iranian Christians. And uh, I did it with a friend who did all the interpreting into Farsi. Anyway, this Bible study has really struck me afresh. And in, and I think you'll see its relevance. And um, this is from volume two of Guerrilla Bible Studies, God's Radical Recruiting. And it's like the last Bible study in that series of uh, 13 studies. So in Acts 9, the resurrected Jesus appears to Saul, who's actively persecuting Christians. And the encounter completely incapacitates and blinds him. The Lord then recruits Ananias, a Syrian Christian, to go to Saul in Damascus with the assignment that Saul be healed of his blindness and filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he baptizes him as um, the apostle to the nations. Now, the background for Saul is that he first appears a couple chapters earlier in Acts 7.58 at the stoning of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. And on that day, a great persecution began against all the followers of Jesus, according to Acts 8.1. Saul was described as being in heartily agreement with putting Stephen to death and then as ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women to put them in prison. And the early Christian movement was called the Way back then. And there's a number of references to that, which we'll see in uh, some of these first verses. So I'm going to read now Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul has some warrants for the arrest of some followers of Jesus. And these are apparently Jewish followers of Jesus who were gathering in synagogues. And so Paul is off um, in search for these people. And so where is he going exactly and what is he doing? Well, we see that, um, you know, he's threatening Jesus's disciples and um, seeking authorization from the Jewish high priest, who we know was very instrumental in crucifying Jesus. So, and he's got that authority to track people down in the synagogues and then arrest them. And um, I was asking our Syrian, I mean, uh, Iranian brothers and sisters, whether there were many people in their country who were, you know, religious zealots who would be on the search for followers of Jesus to arrest them and take them to prison. And they were all like, oh, yeah, there's many, many of them. And um, that's one of the greatest threats to people in, you know, the underground church in Iran is just the threat of being um, arrested and uh, thrown in jail, especially if you're a pastoral worker of any kind. And, um, you know, it's considered a crime to convert from Islam to Christianity. And that can carry the death penalty. 
So anyway, this text was uh, start, startlingly real for these uh, Iranian believers that I was reading with. So let's see what happens to Saul. We're going to read the next couple of verses, Acts 9, 3 to 4. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So what happens to Saul, and what words are spoken to him? You know, it's interesting when we think about Jesus um, and his tactics. You know, I've written a book called Guerrilla Gospel, where I've, I really compare Jesus to, you know, like a guerrilla commander, although with major differences, because Jesus was not violent in any way. But if we look at what were his tactics here, uh, what we see is flashing lights from heaven, right? And um, and those flashing lights from heaven cause Saul to fall to the ground. Uh, doesn't say that you know that Jesus threw him to the ground or you know or anything from heaven forced him to the ground, but that he fell to the ground. And then he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So we have flashing lights and a, a voice, okay, a word, um, a word from God, Saul, Saul. And um, interestingly, the, the doubling of the name Saul is um, understood by Jew Jewish interpreters as, as basically assuring that person that they're saved in this life and in the next. You know, we have um, the doubling of the name happening elsewhere in Scripture, like when God addresses Abraham in Genesis 20 to 11, Abraham, Abraham, um, or Jacob in Genesis 46 2, Moses at the burning bush, Exodus 3 4, Samuel in 1 Samuel 3 10, Martha in Luke 10 41, and uh, Simon in Luke 22 31. And so here, um, this, uh, you know, it's this voice that, that calls him by his name, who knows his name, right? And, um, and who speaks in the singular, why are you persecuting me? Um, now, this um, light from heaven that's sudden is reminiscent of the sudden sound like a violent rushing wind from heaven at Pentecost, isn't it? And um, revealing um, that this, like Pentecost, was a moment of God's direct action. And so God's direct action is, in this case, addressing someone who's an opponent, who's a persecutor. And um, I just love this because it really shows us that uh, Jesus's way, you know, post-resurrection, post-ascension, still is in alignment with, um, you know, with his earthly mission and the way that he operated. Although um, it's not that common for Jesus to cause someone to fall to the ground like this. You know, we see it when he approaches, um, when he's arrested in the garden and people ask him, um, you know, where's Jesus? And he says, I am, you know, I am the one. And he identifies himself using the ego emi, which is the equivalent of, uh, you know, of the, of the divine name in the Greek language. And so they fall to the ground when, he's, when he identifies himself using the divine name of sorts. So let's see what happens next in Acts 9, 5 to 6. And, um, and he that is Paul said, or Saul, who are you, Lord? And um, he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. So what does Paul ask? And what is the response? 
Well, he addresses the voice as Lord, uh, kurios, you know, which is the Greek equivalent of the divine name. And yet it can also mean sir. Um, Jesus identifies himself then as the one who Saul is persecuting, even though Paul or Saul is persecuting uh, followers of the way. So here we see this direct identification between Jesus and followers of, of Jesus, the disciples. And suddenly now Jesus is like the shot caller. He tells Saul to get up, enter the city, and await instructions about what he must do. So Jesus functions as the Lord, as God, and um, the tables are turned. You know, the aggressor now becomes, um, you know, the you know the, the one who has the opportunity to be obedient. Um, so, so Jesus here addresses Saul first with a phrase that emphasizes divine revelation, where he says, um, I am, that is, I am Jesus, ego emi, which uh, is that same, you know, term that is used to, you know, that is used in Exodus chapter 3 when, you know, when God, uh, the angel of the Lord, identifies himself as um, as the Lord, you know, the angel of the Lord who uh, appears to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses says, well, who shall I say sent me? And uh, he says, I am has sent you, or I will be, or I will, I will be. And that, um, the Greek equivalent of that is the same as, it's ego emi. So Jesus identifies himself fully with God here, okay, um, but then also fully with the disciples. Who, um, And that's, to me, really an amazing thing that, that, that the text here emphasizes, that dual identification between Jesus and God, and then Jesus and the disciples. And it's reminiscent of what we see in, um, you know, in other places like the end of, like in Matthew 10, where it says, the one who receives you receives me. And um, the one who receives me receives the one who sent me. And that identification, I believe, is still, you know, the way, um, the way that God sees us. And, you know, we're, uh, we're unified so closely with Jesus when we're his disciples and so closely w with the Father when we're uh, children of God that, um, you know, that Jesus here comes to the disciples' defense and um, and now is recruiting, um, you know, the offender in this case. So Jesus identifies um, so fully that um, that he sends out, um, you know, he, he really communicates clearly that persecuting them, the disciples, is synonymous with persecuting him. So in this moment, Saul comes under the authority, um, out from under the authority of the high priest and under the authority of Jesus. Now, isn't that something else? Like, so he's coming out from the authority of a power, of a, of a principality, really, a power, which is a religious system, um, which is an anti-Jesus system, because it's the very system that crucified Jesus, and he's now coming under the authority of Jesus. So let's see what happens, um, how the disciples, or the people that are following along with Saul um, understand what's going on. So I'm going to read Acts 9, 7 to 9. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So there's no um, seeing of the light, of that light that flashed around for those that were with Saul. Um, but they did hear that voice, uh, which I assume means that they heard um, 
the voice saying, you know, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Saul got up from the ground, and although though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So Saul is going um, and doing what he was asked to do uh, by Jesus, what he was told to do, to, um, you know, to go into Damascus and, um, you know, and to uh, wait what, you know, the instructions that were going to come. And so we'll, we'll see what those instructions are. So do Saul's fellow travelers, um, how do they experience this encounter exactly? And what happens next then? Well, the men are speechless. And they hear that voice of Jesus, but don't see anyone. And so Saul gets up, opens his eyes, but he can't see. And his fellow travelers lead him to Damascus, where he stays for three days without sight, either eating or drinking. Okay, so we've seen that. How is Saul's life and mission disrupted by this encounter with Jesus? Well, we can see he's really been incapacitated and, um, and thoroughly disarmed by Jesus who's the resurrected victim. So unable to see, Saul can't identify the people that he was trying to arrest, can he? Jesus stops him in his mission of persecution in order to recruit him for a new assignment. And um, isn't it amazing to think about someone who's looking for you uh, being blinded? You know, when, when we talked about this with the Iranian believers, they were, they were just delighted by this. I mean, just the idea that, um, that Jesus would come um, in such a concrete way that would clearly um, make, um, make make Saul the persecutor's job impossible was um, it was just uh, was just too too beautiful. Um, until then, we see what um, what's going to happen next, which is very troubling. So let's read Acts nine verse ten. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So what do we know about Ananias from this verse? Well, he's described as a disciple at Damascus. Okay. And um, so he's probably like a Syrian. And, um, and this was also relevant to our brothers and sisters from Iran who um, live not that far from Syria, really. It's a neighboring country. And, um, and so the idea of, uh, of a religious zealot coming to arrest them and then being stopped in its, his tracks, you know, um, and being, uh, in this case, an, an Arab um, is intriguing. So not a Persian, but an, but a, but an Arab. Anyway, um, so maybe Ananias was one of the people that Saul was going to arrest. We don't know whether he was on the list. But um, anyway, the Lord addresses Ananias by name. Um, but only says his name once instead of twice. And he speaks to him in a vision. So it's not um, a voice that other people probably would have been able to hear, but it was a voice that was, that was spoken in a vision. Ananias recognizes that God's calling his name, and he shows his availability where he's, when he says, Here I am, Lord. And it's reminiscent of you know, Isaiah, when Isaiah was in the temple and he saw the the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And he has this experience where um, the Lord says, who will I send? And, um, you know, here he says, uh, here I am, Lord, like Isaiah had said. He shows himself to be completely available to 
uh, Commander Jesus, you know, who is, uh, you know, the King of Kings and who's the shot caller for all of us who are disciples, because that's what it means to be a disciple is to be um, really available, make ourselves available as students and as recruits, you know, to, uh, to do the bidding of Jesus. So let's see what happens now in verses 11 to 12. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. So what does the Lord tell Ananias to do, and how might this be challenging to Ananias? So here it's interesting. It doesn't say Jesus said to him, but it says the Lord said to him, get up and go. And this is almost like word for word what um, the angel says to Philip. You know, when Philip was, um, he'd had the revival that took place in Samaria after a couple chapters earlier when, you know, when he has, when he goes, uh, all the people are scattered after Saul has been part of this uh, execution of by stoning of Stephen. And he goes to Samaria and he preaches and many uh, paralyzed people um, are healed and many people are delivered of their demons and many people come to faith. And And then, um, then the angel of the Lord says to Philip in a dream, get up and go to the road um, going from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert road. And that's all he's told is to get up and go to a particular place. And here we have actually an address, a street called Straight. And um, in the next chapter, when we see um, Cornelius in his conversion, um, we see something quite similar where God speaks to Cornelius and tells him to go to find uh, Peter, who is at the house of Simon the Tanner in Jaffa. And so, you know, here we have, um, you know, like... Very specific, precisely specific words that are given to Ananias in a vision, which I find so intriguing. Like, you know, do do we expect God to speak like that to us? And if God was speaking to us, what would it be like? How um, clear and how obvious would it be? You know, versus maybe vague and um, and easy to dismiss. I wonder. You know, um, I've had. Um, you know, kind of inklings to go different places that I've often followed. And and sure enough, I found that it, it seems that I was being called to go to, to a particular place to meet somebody or to call on a particular person. But here we're given uh, details. Go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas. Wow, right there, I'd be worried just uh, going to anyone's house whose name was Judas, um, you know, considering Judas's... Um, you know, who, the one who betrayed Jesus, um, that he, they have the same name. And, uh, but anyway, he's told to go there. And um, he says, for a man from Tarsus named Saul, um, ask about that guy, right? For he's praying. Well, that's interesting. We don't know anything about Saul that he was praying, you know, based on the previous verses. But now we're given that information by God who would know, you know, whether um, somebody is speaking to him, right, in prayer. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias. Wow, so that's the first we hear about that too. You know, there's no mention of Saul having a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying his hands on him 
so that he might regain his sight. Now, how would you feel if you were Ananias and uh, there was a threat of arrest? Um, you knew that there was persecu persecutors coming your way and who had warrants. And and now um, you're supposed to go and, and, you know, and pray for this person to receive their sight. Um, well, we don't know that Ananias knows yet that this is the, you know, the famous Saul who's out to, out to arrest people. We learn that in the next verse, though. But, um, but anyway, so God orders Ananias to seek out this notorious persecutor of Christians, doesn't he? An enemy of the Christians in Damascus. And God tells Ananias that Saul has already received a vision revealing Ananias' name. Okay, now, to actually believe this, that um, what you're hearing is true, would be a pretty, pretty, pretty risky thing to act on, wouldn't it? Because if you're actually going to go to the person who is who has a warrant for your arrest and pray for them to receive their sight, you're, you know, it's a setup to get arrested right then and there, isn't it? But um, God tells Ananias indirectly through God's account of Saul's vision um, to pray for Saul to regain his sight. He doesn't tell him to pray to receive his sight, but that Saul has seen in a vision um, that Ananias is going to come and lay his hand on him to re so that he might regain his sight. And this healing, um, so he's not directly ordered to go and heal him. It's it's more like um, an indirect um, command, isn't it? And so this, I think this, it's important for us to kind of pay attention to how God might speak to us. Um, because sometimes, you know, we're, we're given very indirect and, and sometimes it's very precise information, like, in this case, go to a particular place and ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. But then there's also things that could be, you know, could be interpreted um, or ignored, whatever. And I think, um, I guess all of this could be ignored. Well, let's see how Ananias responds in verse 13 and 14. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Okay, so Ananias is a disciple who's in the know about who the enemies are and who the persecutors are. He knows him by name. And um, and he responds to the Lord, not um, kind of, sir, yes, sir, um, blind allegiance, you know, blind faith. But in a way, this is kind of like a complaint. Uh, isn't it? Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did um, to the saints who are in Jerusalem. And, you know, Ananias, um, if we consider this to be prayer, where God is speaking to Ananias, Ananias is speaking back, that's dialogical prayer, isn't it? Ananias' response is to, is to bring up all the, um, the negatives about, you know, why he maybe shouldn't go and do it, what the Lord has said. Um, that Saul has seen that Ananias is, um, you know, is, I guess, was going to do according to his vision. It's all secondhand, you know, being recounted by the Lord in a vision too. Um, so how does, how, um, so we see that um, there's a direct report in detail about Saul's reputation. So it's detailed knowledge that he has. And, um, you know, Ananias appears to be talking to Jesus, whom he calls Lord, and the phrase, all who call on your name, would be the 
the biggest argument for that. It's a direct reference to the name of Jesus, which is highlighted throughout Acts chapter 2 through 8, which precedes this. And this phrase is first used in Acts 2.36 when Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you have crucified. And and of course in chapter 3, in the healing of the man who's, who's lame from birth at the beautiful gate, um, it's in the name of Jesus of Nazareth that, that Peter um, says, uh, get up and walk, and then seizes him by the right hand. And, and there's a whole um, discussion of the name, um, you know, where Peter says, don't look at us as if like by some power of piety, we have made this man well. But it's through the name of Jesus. And um, in chapters three and four of Acts, the name of Jesus features, um, you know, really strongly. And, um, and the religious leaders, are, are they order uh, Peter and John not to speak in the name of Jesus. So anyway, um, we know it's Jesus who is the Lord who's speaking, uh, the same Jesus who had um, confronted Saul. So um, let's see how, um, how does the Lord respond to Ananias? We can see that in verses 15 to 16. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So the Lord gives Ananias inside information about Saul's calling, doesn't he? How he has chosen Saul and given him a broad and difficult mission to the non-Jews, to kings, and also to the people of Israel. So the Lord addresses Ananias' concern directly about Saul's past by telling him that Saul will suffer a lot for the name of Jesus. So that's maybe a consolation, isn't it? And um, Jesus is not um, looking at, at, he's not naive here. He's, he's directly um, actually addressing the justice issue by saying that, that hey, believe me, Saul is going to suffer um, for, the name, for my name. And that appears to be enough for Ananias, because um, in verse 17, it reads, so, so Ananias departed and entered the house. Now, listen carefully to what happens um, in the rest of this verse. Okay, so he departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me to you uh, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So how does Ananias respond to the Lord's command exactly? Well, he leaves. Um, he doesn't ask for um, Saul of Tarsus at the house of Judas. He he departs and enters the house. So he, um, and this, this, the reason that I mention this is because in other stories, like in the story of Cornelius, um, it's, the narrative really slows down and there's people knocking at the door of, of Peter's house and Peter's in a trance and he's told that there's people seeking him and to let them, uh, to go with them. But Peter actually goes out of his way and, um, welcomes them in to his house, which the Lord never told him to do. And so we see, this is common, a common feature in the book of Acts where, you know, God will directly ask people to do things. Jesus will, and they will go, um, they'll, they'll do things that they're told to do, but they'll do more. 
and uh, we see that they have, and we have freedom to not just be uh, slavish um, and do exactly what we're told, but but actually to to do even more than what we're told. And so here we see a kind of enthusiasm in that he enters the house, a kind of boldness. And um, Ananias treats Saul as a fellow believer. So uh, even though there's no mention of him being a believer by the Lord, um, he, he addresses him as brother Saul. So there's, I mean, that's a, that's a, an, a demonstration of enemy love if I've ever seen one, isn't it? So here we see Jesus, who is the, the resurrected victim, you know, who, um, who doesn't come in an embodied way, uh, but then recruits an embodied person, Ananias, to, um, you know, to go as a peacemaker and um, as an agent of reconciliation. And I really think that today, as we look at all the violence in the world, what's going on um, in the conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, and we think about, well, what does it mean to uh, actually be a follower of Jesus as the Messiah? You know, and what sort of action should we tr should we have towards enemies who are actually antagonists and out to kill? You know, um, Saul had stoned a Christian, and here we we don't see um, you know like a, a vengeance mindset or 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 any kind of violence, um, but we do see uh, authority being exercised by Jesus, and we see boldness by a believer but really um, a nonviolent approach completely. He comes in so respectful, doesn't he? He tells him that the Lord appeared to him on the road. Well, how do we know? How does he know that? There's no mention of um, Jesus telling him that he had appeared to him on the road. Um, and But apparently either he's prophesying this or, you know, or there's more that Jesus said to him in the vision than what was, what was written down. And so this shows uh, Saul that Ananias received a revelation about Saul's recent encounter with Jesus. And, and it functions as a, like a real prophetic sign. He's prophesying over him and telling him uh, something that only God could have told Ananias because Ananias wasn't a witness of that encounter. And I think prophecy is everywhere in this, in this uh, book of Acts. And we need to read that. Um, you know, those stories thinking about um, the nature of the prophetic that's being, uh, that's being exercised by these early Christians. And I think it's a real invitation for us to step into a similar uh, sort of post-Pentecost, uh, you know, like prophetic um, approach to evangelism and to all that we do. So let's see uh, what happens next in verse 18. So Saul um, receives, uh, Anani or Ananias comes in, lays his hands on him, um, so that he might regain his sight. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight. And he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. So interestingly, there's no mention of, um, you know, of, of Jesus telling Ananias to, um, you know, to baptize him, is there? And, um, this is something Ananias just decided to do. It was probably early church practice that, because um, they were following after what Jesus had commanded, like when we see in Matthew's gospel of, um, you know, like, as you go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to practice everything I've ordered you. So, so baptism is just an extra, um, extra thing that, that Ananias is offering. And then he took food and was strengthened. 
um, took food from who? We don't know. Maybe from Ananias. And um, so something like scales falls from his eyes. And, um, you know, that does that represent a kind of spiritual seeing as well as a physical seeing? There was no mention of scales being placed on his eyes. So anyway, that's something I'd love to study a little bit. So the word used here for he got up is the same word in Greek as resurrected, like resurrected from the dead. So whatever previously kept Saul from seeing Jesus as the Son of God, the Christ, has now been removed. And also, um, Saul now can identify his, um, you know, his victims, so to speak. And But he's changed, and Saul begins now his new resurrected life. So let's see what happens in the next couple verses, uh, 19 to 22. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on, his na on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So, um, wow, how did this guy go from being a zealous, zealous um, Jewish, um, you know, Pharisee, you know, who was out to, um, you know, to arrest Christians who he saw as heretics, to now being, you know, completely convic convicted and convinced that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. Well, I mean, it's this encounter, I think, um, that of, of the resurrected Jesus through the flashing light and the voice and um, mediated through Ananias and Ananias's healing of him and baptizing. So what were some of the changes visible in Saul's life after his conversion and baptism? Well, first, he stays with the disciples in Damascus rather than arresting them. Um, so he's breaking um, his assignment, isn't he? Because he has um, authorization to arrest them, but he's, he's not doing that now. So he's clearly jumped ship from you know, being under the authority of the high priest. And um, he immediately he begins to proclaim Jesus is the Son of God, which would make him a criminal in uh, his own eyes and in the eyes of um, those that sent him to arrest uh, the Christians. Saul grows in strength and surprises the Jews by proving that Jesus is the Christ. And we see that, um, you know, just uh, beautifully in a lot of Paul's writings you know, the, the way that he articulates um, so clearly using the Hebrew Bible, you know, the Greek version of it, how, um, you know, how Jesus fulfills um, the, the Messianic expectation and is, um, you know, is the Christ that is announced in the Old Testament and the Son of God. So um, what, might it, what might it look like for us to step into, you know, this um, kind of... Uh, availability, I guess, that we see that Ananias has, you know, where, uh, you know, we, we, we hear ourselves addressed and we say, here I am, Lord. Um, I feel challenged personally to make myself more available. And, and I wonder if you do. And, um, you know, how do we know when it's really God who's speaking to us? Um, you know, I think this is something we need to experiment with. And But reading these stories, 
I think, um, is really helping me, alerting me to the ways that God speaks, you know, the ways that the resurrected Jesus um, addresses us and recruits us. But it also shows us the tremendous freedom that we have, you know, to go the extra distance in our devotion and to, um, you know, which we see in other stories in Acts that maybe we'll look at in the future. But anyway, let's close with a prayer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would um, awaken us to the teachings of Jesus. Um, Jesus, we ask that we would hear your voice, that we would be responsive to um, your um, orders to us, your voice to us, your, uh, help us to hear in a more precise way. I pray that this, the, our ears would be unstopped and scales would fall from our eyes and that we would, um, you know, we would really uh, get a clearer revelation about who you are as the Son of God and as the Messiah and that we would uh, break uh, any alignment that we have with the, you know, with the powers and principalities that are about violence and that we would uh, shift completely away from any allegiance to those powers and be fully devoted to you and to your way of peace. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.